Good morning, and it's time for conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a wet conversation day here on 94 WIP. Rain's going to continue into the afternoon, and then it's going to get windy. So no matter where you go, take an umbrella, maybe a raincoat, and 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And when we come back in just a bit, we're going to talk about the just. Jesse Smollett and other controversy, and the part that's played by social media. All this and more coming up here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, and you're on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. And I'm pleased to welcome back an old friend, Dr. John Huber, our expert on all things mental health. Good morning, Dr. Huber. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm fine. All right, Doctor, one of the things that's been in the news a lot lately is the Jussie Smollett controversy. Sorry about that. And it <laughs> makes me wonder what the heck was going on with that man. What do you think? Well, I think what, what we have here is is somebody who has some, some issues. Now, I have not assessed him, I have to say that, and this is just based on behaviors we're seeing. And what I'm seeing is an individual who definitely shows signs of narcissism. And uh, along with that, that's often associated with things like antisocial personality disorder and that type of stuff. But you have someone who uh, potentially set up the nation to be involved in race riots and things like that. And, you know, he had a lot to gain from this. I mean, he's, he was a decent actor and he's making good money, but all of a sudden he's now the face, the icon of anti-racism and all that type of stuff, he, his, his worth goes through the roof. And I think he was uh, setting, setting us up uh, to, to, you know, solidify his, his career, so to speak. Uh, and that's just total speculation. So, but I mean, that's what I see from the behavior. What else does he have to gain from doing something like that? Um, you know, they, the, the show said they weren't planning on canceling it with at least in the next season anyhow. And now he lost, he's not even in the season, the rest of the season now. So, um, very narcissistic. He believed that the police were not smart enough to catch him. And, uh, I mean, he wrote a check to these guys. He didn't give them cash. He wrote a check. I mean, that's a paper trail. That's pretty, pretty bizarre, I think. Oh, absolutely. It's bizarre. Um, and I guess the question I've got, though, is he had so much to lose. He's essentially torpedoed his career. Who's going to hire him? Absolutely. And, again, I think, I think again, it's part of that narcissism. People get wrapped up in it, you know, and, they're, and how, how super intelligent, super smart, and how they can – and uh, how their net worth is as far as their, their social net worth and what people will do for them and protect them and things like that. And uh, he just, he let it get out of control. And he did some probably irreparable damage to himself. And he's looking like, you know, probably one to three years he's going to get. And Chicago's mad enough at him that they'll probably give him all one to three years. But that's another discussion. Um, Exactly. It puzzles me, though. I mean, here's a man who was complaining he got $65,000 an episode. I mean, he wasn't a star. He was a co-star. Um, and complaining at 65000 probably a week, I'd be happy to get $65,000 a week. 
Well, there's a lot of people in this country who'd be happy to get 65000 for a year. Uh, that's over the median annual income, let alone a weekly income. So, My goodness. Um, he made the rounds of print media, visual media, and social media. Who do you think, which one of those medias do you think takes a lot of responsibility or should take a lot of responsibility for getting people all excited about the controversy? Social media, I think, is is where it's at. There's no filter. Uh, social media does not work on a 24-hour news cycle. It works on a 10- or 15-minute news cycle. People on there, the millennials and, and people who are wrapped up in it, whether they're 45 years old or, or 15, they read headlines. They don't read content. Uh, they, they don't encourage critical thinking in those news briefs. And they tell you basically what to think. So I think I think social media bears the brunt, and then everybody just followed suit because there were so many people on that bandwagon. Well, but you say social media doesn't encourage critical thinking, but how can you give critical thinking to something like what Mr. Smollett was charging? I mean, we weren't there. How do we know who in their right mind would make up such a story? Who would have thought right. Jesse was a little nuts? Right. Well, you know, one of the things, maybe I look at the world a little different because I am a forensic psychologist, but, um, you know, to get a, a letter sent to you uh, threatening to to assault somebody and create these this race issue, then the same person who got the letter was the one who was randomly picked at 2 o'clock in the morning at 20 below zero uh, is statistically an anomaly. You're not going to, I mean, if you're robbing a bank, you don't write a letter to the bank and say, hey, you know, and if he was targeted in that letter, why wasn't he followed by police? And he was hungry that night. Who knew he was going to that restaurant to pick up something to eat that night but him? Uh, too many red flags. And, and when I saw that story, I just kept my mouth shut because, you know, my, my friends were like, what, what do you think? And I go, man, something just isn't right. And, uh, and then it broke, so... Well, not only that, though, with his money, he could have had something delivered food-wise or Absolutely. paid for a, a Lyft or an Uber, let alone his own personal driver. Exactly. Exactly. It just did not make sense, period. And, again, the police and the FBI were a lot smarter than he gave them credit for. Hmm. What do you think about the police outrage at all of this? Well... You know, police outrage over something like this, the, the number of man hours it took to do this, the FBI number of man hours to do research and find out what's going on, um, you know, there, there are real crimes going on in Chicago. And uh, I think they would much rather be out there doing that and somebody, instead of chasing after a wild goose chase that somebody who's trying to make, make somehow create some uber importance in their world uh, because of who they are instead of necessarily what they are doing or, or what they can do. Well, who they are. Do you think maybe Jesse was trying to say, I am somebody? Oh, yeah, but I think he'd already done that. You said it yourself, 65000 a, a week, an episode. That is pretty much, you know, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty doggone good, and that says a lot in this world. I can't imagine his co-stars are too happy with him, Taraji P. Henderson and um, Terrence Howard. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm sure they're probably floored, and they don't really want to uh, probably acknowledge right now that they had a relationship with him, other than just we went to work and you know he acted and we left. <laughs> yeah. And then for him to go on TV and go, who the bleep would have make up such a story? <laughs> well, you want to believe that, don't you? Mm-hmm. And that that's why it makes it sound so rational. But it's not. Narcissistic personalities. Yes. That's what Jesse is. What well, do you, what do you do he, for he exhibits those behaviors. I haven't tested him, but he exhibits narcissistic behaviors, yes. What do you do for somebody like that to make them more sociable and acceptable? Well, first of all, they 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 have to be uncomfortable with their narcissism. And unfortunately, most people with that personality, they, they like who they are. They like their belief set that they are superior. And uh, if, if somebody doesn't want to change, they're not going to. So that's typically what happens in that situation. And then you follow that up with what did you see any sympathy or any remorse in any of the comments he's made after he was arrested, after he was released? Uh, we get attitude. That's what we got from it. Uh, it's, you know, it's continuing that narcissism. He doesn't have a problem with who he is. Got to wonder, too, about the two brothers he enlisted to get, give him help, one of them being his own personal trainer. Did he think yes. the other two wouldn't blab? Well, again, that's, you know, <laughs> any rational person would say, wait a minute, this isn't quite adding up here. So... Yeah, there's some some funny business going on there, I think. Well, there's an old saying, a conspiracy is only a conspiracy when three people know it and two of them are dead. That's exactly right. And, you know, you don't leave a paper trail and he wrote checks. If we can step back from Jesse for a minute. Okay. What do you think about social media in general? Helpful, hurtful, neutral, and it depends on how we use it? Well, that's a good question because, you know, I have privileges at a couple of hospitals and I have patients who go in for transplants and, and, you know, they have issues with immune systems being weakened so they can't get friends and family come in and and visit them unless they put on these hazmat uniforms and all this kind of stuff. And social media has allowed so many of my patients the ability to communicate and contact and deal with uh, family members and friends and make them feel supported and cared for and loved. Uh, so I see, I see it has potential to be great, but we also have watched and done studies, and we know that if, if you're doing social media for two or more hours a day, that at two hours your body starts giving the behavioral signs of depression. In fact, the CDC says that it is uh, causal for depression too much time on social media like that. Uh, it it, it kind of fools us because we get you know, when we when we walk down a hallway and we see a friend of ours or a family member and we smile at each other, our bodies respond by sending out neurochemicals like hormones and things like that internally. And then when you make physical contact, you shake hands, you get dopamine, you get norepinephrine, you get uh, oxytocin, which is the chemical that triggers the whole love situation, those love, tr- love triggers. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, when you're on social media, you only get the dopamine. You don't get any of the other neurotransmitters. And that dopamine feels really good. In fact, it's the exact same stimulus response mechanism 
that you get when you use heroin or cocaine. And so that dopamine feels really good. It's just a real mild drop of uh, dopamine then. And you almost immediately start craving more. So you get back on social media and you see another like, or you see another friend of yours who's posted something on your wall and you get another dopamine drip. Unfortunately, it's very much like drinking a diet soda. Your belly fills up, you get a sweet taste in your mouth, but there's absolutely no nutritional value in that diet soda at all. And we become emotionally starved and our bodies don't respond well. Our immune system does get weakened because all of those things build up and make our body work appropriately. We're socialized animals. We're, we're, we're part of a community and our biology reacts best when we're actually having contact with other human beings. And when we don't, we start hungering for that and we get sick physically. Our body starts wearing down faster. And uh, I think social media, when used appropriately and sparingly, intermixed with real-life interaction, real-life activities, getting outside, camping, fishing, hunting, playing basketball, football, going to work and seeing your friends you know, in the hallway, working on projects together. If you utilize it in and among all of that, it's wonderful. But when I have patients walking in my door who haven't been outside in the daylight in six weeks because they go to work and write home and they sit down on their computer and they do social media till they fall asleep at three in the morning. They get up at, at six and they go to work and they do the same thing day in, day out, day in, day out. Their friends drop off. The average person on social media has lost in the last three years seven friends. How many friends do we have as our core group? Roughly 12 to 15. So they've lost half of their core friends just because of social media use. But they feel like they have all these friends because what do they call it on Facebook? You're a friend. But the average person knows very few of those friends. Less than 22% of the people on your Facebook account are people you actually know statistically. And I wager that there's a lot of other people out there that it's closer to maybe uh, 15 or 20 people on your Facebook list and the rest are all, all acquaintances or friends of friends or people you just liked along the way. And uh, it's pretty scary. It really is, Peter. Well, I'm told there was a survey recently of people on Facebook, 3,000 people, um, and less than a quarter of them said their friends on Facebook were their true friends. Exactly. There's that 22%. 25 is pretty close to 22. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. All right. That's Facebook. What do you think about Twitter? Helpful, hurtful, and neutral? Um, you know, Twitter, again, it's like that headline news. You, you don't read the, the content. I mean, you get, what, uh, so many characters to make your statement, and that's it, period. It's just boom. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's not giving us the content that we need to be able to make rational, appropriate, educated decisions when people make claims or tell us stories about things, whether it's the president or uh, an actor on, on a movie that's coming out. It's It's... I don't see it being any better. Um, it has different nuances to its use. Uh, it keeps people maybe from from sitting there forever and writing out diatribe after diatribe, which, thank goodness, you know, <laughs> some people you just need to get them to shut things down and only say it in a couple of sentences. But uh, uh, other than that, I don't see much of a difference in how it, your body and your brain reacts to it over Facebook. 
And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call. If you want to talk with Dr. John Huber about Mr. Smollett or about the controversy about Facebook and Twitter in general, helpful, hurtful, the call number, 1-888-729-94, 1-888-729-94. And on your cell phone, it's pound 94 Nine four. Give us a call. Be a part of the discussion. The WIP time six twenty. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's ninety four WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dr. John Huber, founder executive director of Mainstream Mental Health. Also, our comment on things psycho- our commentary here on all things psychological here on conversation. And we're talking about Jussie Smollett. We're talking about social media. And we're talking a whole lot more. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call. It's 1-888-729-9494. Dr. Huber, I remember when I was a kid, my father got three newspapers, got Newsweek, got Time. Now, if we get one newspaper, it's extraordinary. Two, if we watch the evening news and trust it, it's extraordinary. <laughs> How are we supposed to get our critical thinking done? Well, you know, we have to do our homework, and, and we have to look at multiple regulated sites, sites that we know of with certainty uh, that they're at least doing some kind of diligence. And then I also recommend to to my students and the people I work with to go overseas and get news sites, you know, from different countries and see what they're focusing in on. And it's amazing how some of these, you know, even stuff that comes up off of off of some of the news sites from from Russia, for example, and they come back and they're all, you know, evil America this, evil America that, and they start talking about all these bad things that we're doing over here. It's funny because my friends and I have started watching some of those Russian sites and all of a sudden we get a we get a, a, a blurb, you know, 10, 12 weeks after the Russian newspaper report reports it, and there's a little paragraph, on, you know, on the 13th page of the New York Times, and it briefly mentions what, what the Russians did and put, you know, in, in three large stories, you know, over, over a, you know, seven- or eight-day period. Uh, it, and it's funny how they, they post that stuff, of course, to make us look bad, but not everything in it is false. It's based off something of truth. So if you go around, it's kind of like the spy game. You know, you get verification from multiple sources before you believe something. And that's kind of what we have to do. Uh, there's not a library for us to go to and just pull this stuff out anymore. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, and it's not going to get easier, I don't think. Now, people may put together apps that supposedly go through and track things and all that kind of stuff. But... We've already seen that and, and how, how apps can be biased, whether it's, you know, listening to, to the designers of Facebook tell you about how they bias certain news-type announcements so that people don't get it off the, that subscribe to Facebook. So um, we have to do it ourselves, and that's the only way we're going to have any true faith in it. And uh, we, we're probably going to have to figure out a new way to do that in general as a society so that we don't have to worry anymore and one of them may be that uh, we put some sort of um, you know ethics code or something that that 
that have some teeth in it uh, to get us back on fact-checking and fact-verification in these so-called uh, news reporting sites and news reporting areas. Well, but that takes time, and a lot of people feel yes, they sir. have no time. And they, they believe they have no time whatsoever, but think of all the time we wasted on Jesse Spillett mm. when if, if we had just given it three days before we said anything, uh, and we'd had the answer. So. And you're listening. We wasted 10 days. Absolutely. And we have a caller this morning on 94 WIP wanting to talk to Dr. Huber. Let's say good morning to Greg from West Philadelphia. Good morning, Greg. Hey, hey, Greg. Yeah, yeah. How you doing, Peter? How you, you know? You know how you doing, Doctor? Um, you know, um, I, I look at it like this. Um, I look at it like this. I, I think okay. that freedom of speech and freedom of liberty of, of human beings are being taken away. The rights are being taken away. But let me get an example. Of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, you know, when the doctor was talking about the you know, technology dealing with the media, I mean, you have a president that sits in the White House that's on Twitter 24 hours a day. Controversy after controversy. The the um the um the, the the quarterback that refused to stand for the national anthem, um, and 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 then everything everything he every time I turn around when something happens, he's always tweeting something's out. But you know. I found out, okay, I found out, like, with the media, I mean, that in society, and I talked to a friend of mine about this, okay, is that the media only focus on what they want to focus on. They don't focus on the truth. Let me give you an example. Absolutely. Okay? Okay? Um, the, the local media here in Philadelphia, okay, Channel 6, Channel 10, Channel 3, okay, only focus on violence and continuing violence that happens in every city. But every time when I moved to Chicago, it was the same thing. When you go to L.A., it's the same thing. You know, anywhere you go, you know, violence become a major money maker in this country. And what it is, I found out when I watched Amy Goodman and when I watched BBC News, they talk about stuff that happens globally around the world. Okay, how do we, you know, you know what's going on with Russia? You know, you know what's going on in Pakistan? You know what's going on in India? You know what's going with the policy between the United States and all these other foreign countries? And Peter, I spoke with you a couple of weeks ago when you had somebody on your show, and I was telling you. The biggest problem that we have in this country, okay, is income inequality. And that's still, um, I don't care who you put in the White House, Democrat, Republican, whatever. The only person I think that has any type of understanding of this is Bernie Sanders. Because I was in Philadelphia a couple of years ago when he had the Democratic National Convention that was here. And he spoke on some things. He spoke at Temple, Temple University, Peter. And he spoke on some things. And the thing that I realized is that the older generation of people, 50 years old, I'm 55, and the younger generation of people have different perspectives politically that's going on in this country. The student loan debt, okay? The, the, uh, the, um, the, um, the NAFTA free trade agreement that shipped jobs overseas. Now I listen to a guy named, that name, his name is Richard Wolf, and he talks about this all the time. And he talks about things that people won't talk about. He talks about how companies have moved overseas to China, how China become a major, a major economic power compared to the United States. And, 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 and the problem is that China was a communist country that became a socialist country, became a biggest economic power in terms of dollars. So now you're talking about a country that has a billion people that's talking about replacing the United States in the global market. And if you notice, um, and, I, and I agree with the doctor, what the psychiatrist was saying too, is that when you looked at what the fall of Wall Street, the um, this this is called tall taxes, this called thing that that Trump put out 
for the billionaires where these taxpayers millions of dollars in the companies of people that are billionaires that refuse to pay taxes and they avoid to pay taxes because they got these offshore bank accounts across the globe, across the globe. And, and then you look at the guy who runs Amazon. His name is, um, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, but he makes billions of dollars. And then you talk about the top 99%, and then you look at the, the 99% gets the 1%. And you talk about the fall of uh, how you got this, um, this it's called of, uh, um, this infrastructure that's coming in, in the urban neighborhoods where your hospital and college is buying a property at a massive rate that's moving people out. See, these are the issues that people are not talking about. So we get clouded through the media talking about the Jesse Smallwood situation, the R. Kelly situation, and everything else. And it's a big distraction that the media use, but they don't talk about the real issue. The real issues is that Absolutely. the minimum wage hasn't been moved since 1978, uh, Peter. Since 1978, okay, a you got millions of people out here that can't afford health care. People are, are going to work every day, one paycheck away from being losing their homes, okay? And, uh, let me, I want to say this in closing. If you've seen a film called The Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, mm -hmm. okay, that was based on a real-life story that this guy did that. And the housing collapse that happened in 2007, 2008, we still have recovery on. I was at a convention, okay, at the, at the convention center down in Center City, and I talked to a guy who was a union representative who told me this. He said that what happens with the unions are not strong anymore, okay? So what we don't make in America, we don't make nothing in America. Everything's being shipped overseas to China, Malaysia, India and places like that, and what happened was they turned everything around. Now, back in the 60s, we had the steel mill industries. We had the um, we had coal miner industry. We had people that made things in America, the automobile industry. And with technology, like how the, like how the doctor was saying, it's starting to take over. I've just seen some recently where they say they got electric cars now, Pete. Electric cars. We can plug a, a, a sudden into a car, and a car can run. So what they're trying to do is get rid of the gasoline, heat, and all that, Okay. And what they do when they privatize, I think mean, what technology did is advance the world, but it has a big destruction towards the world. Because what it is is separating the global economic system in terms of where people are at, the people that have the wealth, and the people that don't have wealth, and the kids that go to school. Because I have a friend of mine who's, who's a college professor at Temple University, and he talked about the student loan debt where the basic kids are struggling just to stay in school. But if you're a billionaire, you can stay in school. Because if your family got money and they got wealth, they can keep you in school. So it's not even about race. It's about class, economic class. And that's why I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren talks about. They talk about the issues. That's why I said I'm tired of the two clown um, um, parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I think we need a major change in this country, and it has to happen. Because if you look at the media, Fox News, CNN, they all have an agenda. Fox News is the Republican station, and CNN is, is a Democratic station. I don't think neither one of the parties serves the interests of American people at all. Mm. I'll leave on that note. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. <laughs> well, I think Greg makes an important point, including from the media's point of view, that old saying in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I don't know what to say beyond that. Um, except, Correct. I'm with you on that one, Peter. Except, except then, it, um, it speaks to the worst of us in some respects, doesn't it? Oh, yes. It does. 
and it, it also speaks to how individuals in this country have seen have somehow lost their voice. I mean, you know, this government was set up to be a government for the people, by the people, run by the people themselves. And we've now got politicians who are no longer the people. They 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 have thirty year careers as politicians and they were designed originally to hold office one one to three terms and go back to being an attorney, go back to being a baker, going back to being a banker. And, you know, if you're going back into that workforce, you're going to do a lot to protect that workforce as opposed to, hey, I can stay here and let other workforces pay me extra money on the side and re, you know, refill up my coffers so I can run for election again. Um, and I'll just help that industry out a little bit. And all of a sudden it changes things. And that's one of the big reasons why, why people are afraid of Trump. Uh, he's got his own money and, and, you know, he doesn't take money from from those things other than the investments he's already gotten, which, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's what it is. But I don't think the GOP or or the Democratic part, part, the DNC has any kind of faith or trust in, in our president, period. Well, but that's an important point because the president, bless his heart, um, uses social media to advance that agenda. It, it uses it to manipulate us, doesn't he? Yes. I agree. I think he does. And I don't think he does anything by accident. Those stupid comments he put out. I mean, you know, think back to the election where, you know, his opponent spent almost $2 billion and he spent under $200 million. But whenever the opponent would come out and start taking the lead, he'd tweet at 3 o'clock in the morning something so asinine and ridiculous that for the next 10 days that's all they talked about. And his opponent just got pushed underneath all the media. And he maintained his lead. He he grew his lead by doing that. And I think, in all fairness to the president, the opposition also manipulates us, doesn't it? Oh, they do. They do. They all do. So how do we how do we cope with that? I, I mean, maybe your statement of ethics is important, and maybe the Federal Election Commission needs to do something about ethics and social media. But then again, that's a challenge to free speech, and that's a problem. That is a problem, and, and it's a, it's, you know, we have free speech in this country, but we can't walk into a into a restaurant or into a movie theater and yell fire. You know, there are consequences for our our statements and our actions, and you know, where where do we draw that line in social media? And th- th- we're we're in growing pains right now. We have to realize that that these things. I mean, smartphones were released to the public in 2007. They've been out for 12 years. Look what that's done to the world, not just our country. And we are so far behind in managing it because we're reactionary because we don't know what's coming next. It's been such a whirlwind approach. The the positive things I see is that we are very resilient. We are champions for ourselves as human beings and we will find a way to overcome and i have faith in that i think you know we talk about the the generation coming up the millennials and how oh man look at all these bad things they have but there are some amazing millennials in there who aren't like the bad ones that we'd like to talk about on the news and stuff all the time and i think the good is going to turn things around and maybe i'm naive but i remember how they used to tell us how Elvis Presley was going to be the fall of Western civilization because those those gyrating hips and nobody's going to be able to deal with, with television anymore when we had three channels. Well, we survived Elvis. We're going to survive this. We're just going through growing pains right now. 
Well, but it's an awful difficult growing to say the least. Absolutely. Um, talk about manipulation. Going back to Mr. Smollett for a minute. You know, who, whoever did it, and it sounds like right. we know who did it. Um, the use of. But the, we're not sure. <laughs> but we're not sure. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, as soon yes. as that benefit may be. Um, the use of this is MAGA country, and this is the use of the noose. Pushes some buttons. Oh, absolutely. And those those were symbolic and picked specifically, I think, for whoever manipulated this. And in fact, uh, whoever did this is probably who we should be charging with a hate crime. Uh, not not the not the two brothers who jumped him and and put the noose around his neck, supposedly. But uh, you know, when you when when we sit back and we have uh, bizarre interactions with Spallett, when he shows up at the police department with with the rope around his neck still. Well, unfortunately, every victim I've ever met or talked to or seen data on, they get rid of their bondages as soon as they can, and they, they don't care where they're at. They get rid of them, they drop them, they throw them away. They, they don't want any part of it at all. So why was he so different? And again, the police saw what was going on. They're saying these things are not lining up and, and pointing due east. We have to figure out what's going on here. And they were a lot smarter than I think he gave them credit for. And it's also interesting that it happened in Chicago, which I think is fair to say is a racially troubled city. Yes, and not really MAGA country. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, because that's what he claimed. They were saying this is MAGA country, and you know, no, it just it it did not make sense. Too many holes in the floorboard. Amen. And you're listening to conversation. We'll be back with Dr. John. Huber, Jesse Smollett, social media, mental health, and a whole lot more here on 94 WIP, WIP Times 741. And we're back on conversation with Dr. John Huber here on 94 WIP. We're talking Jesse Smollett, we're talking social media, and we're talking a whole lot more. Be a part of the discussion. Last call, 1-888-729-9494, Seven two nine nine four nine four. Do you believe Jesse? Do you not believe Jesse? What do you think? Let me know. All right, John. Um, being manipulated though really distresses me because um, it can't lead to anything good. It, it can't. And you know, when you're being manipulated, uh, there, there's a victim. There is somebody who is getting hurt. Uh, and and somebody else is taking advantage of them. It's it's you know one of the things when your your college just talked about inequality uh, of pay of income. Well, the reality of it is when you have somebody who has access to limit somebody's free speech because and and participate in that manipulation, they have an advantage over everybody else. And I think it's much more. Uh, extreme and dangerous than the income equality because if we step back and fall into truly capitalistic models and get government out of it, income equality evolves and levels itself out, if done appropriately. Um, It's when it starts getting manipulated that by government typically or sometimes scrupulous business owners uh, that, that, that gets you there. But on social media, who, who's the, who's the, uh, 
lifeguard who who's monitoring and watching all of that you know because we are afraid of freedom of speech being left behind we've given everybody in this country access to making their own Facebook page making their own internet page making web design putting up what they want and we have uh, seen uh, black helicopter radio show hosts go out there and create 15 or 20 websites and then start posting documents that they contrived and made up and and reciting from one website to another website and then going on their television or radio show and saying this is fact it was on seven different websites and we can trace it back to its origins and blah 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 blah, blah. and uh, it you know anybody can be the manipulator is what I'm basically trying to say at this point well, so how do we do that ethics a thousand years ago when I was in training to be a social worker um, yeah. there was a gentleman by the name of Eric Byrne the, mm -hmm. the guy who yeah I'm okay you're okay and right. he talked about the games people play and one of the games that people like to play is let's you and him fight. And that seems to me what it is. Well, it's easy. It's easy to do that. It, 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 it doesn't take any skill. You know, for example, think about uh, movie critics. It's so much easier for them to go out and rip a movie apart instead of laying their soul to bear and say, this is why I like this movie. It touched me this way. It made me think about my childhood, you know, and tell you all the good things about the movie because then they're vulnerable. Plus, hate sells. This is the worst since, you know, whatever movie, and you lose that as a headline, and all of a sudden you're getting listeners, you're getting click-throughs on your website, and you're getting newspapers sold, magazines sold, and time on the national airwaves. It's pretty scary. You think we're going to survive it, but sometimes I, I do. But sometimes I wonder. I mean, sometimes I think about maybe it's time to move to another country. <laughs> well, I think in a lot of ways the other countries are worse uh, because in a lot of ways the government is already stepping in, and then, then they're only getting what the government wants you to have. Uh, and that's the problem and the danger that I think we face here. We may end up in that same situation if we're not careful. And we may already be there and just don't know it or have full awareness. Well, what do you tell people, though, who are in despair from all of this? Oh, well, first thing I tell them to do is start by taking a week-long break from all social media and news. Just turn everything off for a week. Uh, the research shows you do that if you're falling into despair and becoming depressed and having those symptoms one week and you're on your way to recovery. At that point, I start telling you, limit yourself to to an hour or less a day. They're going to argue with me, and I'll say, okay, two hours or less a day. I still think that's bad. I would much rather have you do it an hour or less a day, and then give yourself at least one day where you get a complete respite from social media, whether, whether it's Sunday or Saturday or Monday, afternoon, or Monday day, not the afternoon, the whole day where there's no social media on that 24-hour window that you have right there. And that will help us start locking things down. And I know people will criticize me for that, but I took eight weeks this past summer and did it for eight weeks. Now, I have an advantage. I have people in my office who can monitor stuff and keep me on top, you know. But uh, I didn't do anything. I didn't get on, on social media during that whole eight-week window. And uh, I came back to it, and I'm on there now, but nothing like I was before. And its importance has 
changed significantly because of that eight-week vacation I took, and I recommend everybody to do that. Okay. We have another caller. Let's say good morning to Al from... Um... AJ. AJ, I'm sorry. AJ. Good morning, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Hey, I've been, I'm really enjoying the show, but I do have a, a couple reservations with some things that your guests have stated. Uh, number one, Trump does not use his own money. He was backed in the election by the Mercer family, one of the richest families in the world, who's also the backing of Barbite News and the alt-right. That's where his money came from. He had run out. He is not that liquid, which is probably one reason we're going to look at the emollients clause. That's number one. Number two, Illinois is mega country. Chicago is a city in a state that is mega country, and that's data support that. And another thing is your guest seems to be an apologist for the free market economy, and there's a reason the government intervenes, volatility. We are not functioning with business folks on a high moral ground who are going to do the right thing. Look at the fact that the minimum wage is so low overall. Not the official minimum wage, but the minimum wage that people actually are employed with. So those are the things I have issue with. I'd like to hear if he has time to respond to them. Okay, John. <laughs> well, you know, when, when we actually see the facts that, that, that he was like that and they're not through some of the outlets that we've just been talking about today, then then I'd love to see that um, at the, oh. on, as far as our president. And then we move forward to to the the whole thing. I do believe he is correct about we have to have uh, business uh, owners, business board members who are honest and and legitimately truthful to their employees. And that is a place where I believe government can step in, and that is. Uh, like the FCC, you're monitoring people's uh, behaviors, not necessarily telling them that they have to sell uh, a loaf of bread for $2.95, not $3. Um, and, and there's a difference between that. You know, I want to make sure, and the government's the best person to do that, to make sure that when I pay for a pound of, of oatmeal, I get a pound of oatmeal, not 14 ounces. So he is right. Oh. But we need more education, we need more information, and we need validation of all of those things. Well, thank you, sir. I really enjoyed your response, and I will end with saying one thing. You are right about the Internet. It seems like by setting up a Facebook page, so many people think they've been bequeathed a Ph.D. in whatever subject. Uh, uh, amen. Amen. <laughs> thank you, AJ. Enjoy, sir. Thank, thank you. you. All right, and I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber, Mainstream Mental Health, for giving us some insight into Jesse Smollett and to the uses and abuses of social media. Look at social media. Look at the news with a critical eye. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPO Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. Hey, Alexa, play Conversations in WIP Sunday with Peter Solomon here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio because it is time for WIP Sunday, and my name is Peter Solomon. And when we come back in just a bit, a fascinating woman named Feminista Jones 
What's that name about? We'll find out. Her new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from Tweets to the Streets. Tweets, streets, and a whole lot more when we come back here with Feminista Jones. The WIP time, 7 o'clock. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, feminist, blogger, commentator, Feminista Jones. Good morning, Miss Jones. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine and welcome. Now, I have to ask, Feminista Jones is not what's on your birth certificate, is it? No, but it is what is on my trademark certificate. Okay. <laughs> where, where does the name come from and why? <laughs> um, so I I really love the uh, genre black exploitation films because I thought that they were really extra in how they talked about um, social commentary. And one of my favorite characters is named Cleopatra Jones, who is played by Tamara Dobson, who is also very tall like I am. I'm six feet. She was like six two. And I just always thought her character was cool. Um, and then I started writing under a pseudonym because I was trying to maintain some level of, like, privacy and safety in my life without putting all of that out there. So I came with Feminista Jones, and Feminista is Spanish for feminists which I, uh, you know, also speak. So there we have it. Why a need for safety, though? What, what were you fearful of? Well, I mean, as a recent report came out, you know, black women are the most harassed people online. Um, I knew that there would be all kinds of things from trolls to people wanting to, you know, harm me simply because I was a public feminist. Um, that is still a very dangerous identity to assume. So, I wanted to do that as well as I, w- I was working as a social worker. And I, there's a certain level of confidentiality you have to maintain, and I didn't want to compromise the work that I was doing on that side. So I uh, started using a pseudonym. Well, congratulations on being a social worker with a BSW under my belt. I have ah. great admiration for people with that education and background. Yes, I had recently retired in December, but I worked for almost 17 years as a social worker. Okay, what led you? What led you to deciding to become Feminista Jones? Well, I've also always wanted to be a writer. I had two things I wanted to do: write and help people. And I've wanted to do these things since I was a kid, and so I ended up doing both. And um, when I became a writer, I started out on, you know, well, as an adult online, early blogging in the early two thousands kind of just sharing my work out there with everyone, and uh, people really responded well to it, and I found that I was able to use different social media platforms to share it, and I would write about everything from feminism to race to just things going on in my life, and it was um, it was really something that caught on with folks, and since it was a dream of mine, I decided to follow it. I remember a book that came out by a black male writer. Makes me want to holler. What makes you want to mm-hmm. holler? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Racism and patriarchy and classism and queer phobia and all the things that are established and function and work to keep people oppressed in some way. Anything that stands in the way of a human being being able to live freely, um, that's really what makes me want to holler. Okay. Now, I didn't let you know we were going to do this, but I'm going to ask anyway. In our last hour, Mm -hmm. we talked about Jussie Smollett. In that mm-hmm. whole controversy, any thoughts? Yeah, my my main thought is uh, we don't know the whole story, 
And as we see that keeps happening almost hourly, some new piece of information comes out. So, you know, I, I, I just, something sounds fishy to me. It doesn't seem right. Um, I don't know what happened, but I do know that the Chicago Police Department is known for lying and covering up a lot of things. So I just am waiting with everyone else to see what all the details are. Um, I don't like that people are saying things like, oh, if he lied, he set back the gay rights movement by decades, and that's ridiculous. You know what I mean? I, I hate when people say things like that. But I'm just waiting to hear what happens. So right now you're giving him the benefit of the doubt. I give all, pretty much all people that say that they've been victimized in, in some kind of way, I give them the benefit of the doubt until they're proven to not be true because the truth is, like, it's what 3% of people make false claims like this. So, you know, that with those odds, you know, it's more likely that something did happen. I don't know, though, and I am giving him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I don't see why so many people are so interested in rushing to make a conclusion about this or anything else uh, that involves police and an investigation and things like that without any real evidence. Well, that's interesting because people make a, a rush to judgment in both directions. People made a yeah. rush to judgment that Jesse was abused and how horrible mm-hmm. it was. And at mm-hmm. the same time, people are making a judgment that Jesse was the abuser and abused right. himself. Right, and I, th- I think that because we live in a world where victims are rarely believed, particularly victims that have been, like, sexually violated or physically assaulted in ways that, you know, may connect to their identities, we rarely believe them. So I think that there's been a movement to try to show more support for people who actually come forward because it's difficult to do that. So I think that's why a lot of people may have rushed towards that. Um, I also think that we respond immediately to the drippings that happen on social media, this 24-7 news cycle, people kind of making up, up, making up as they go. But when you have a situation where there's a person of color who has another, you know, identity, like being uh, gay, who is making these statements, you know, you're like, well, what really happened? I know for sure I'm not going to immediately believe any police department in the United States. So, you know, maybe they're right, but I'm going to wait for them to prove that they're right. Well, as a citizen and taxpayer, though, does that make you sad that you don't feel you can believe any police department? Um, I've known pretty much my whole life that I can't trust the police, and everything about American history lets me know that I can't trust the police. So I don't feel bad about it. It's kind of what it is. Um, I also my taxes also go towards the roads and they're crap. I still got to drive on them. Mm-mm-mm. All right. <laughs> What's the word feminism mean to you and feminist? Feminism means equality and equity for all genders, and it means that everyone has access to the same resources and opportunity and human rights and the right to be free. And unfortunately, because it's historically been women who have been on the um, on the oppressed side of that, we use the term feminism to push that forward. To be a feminist means that you are advocating for equal rights across all genders. And that's basically fundamentally it. But do you at least can you say things are getting better? Um, I think everything gets better because humans evolve and become better. The more we learn, the more, you know, the better we become about things. I won't say that things are the same as they were 100 years or even 25 years ago, um, but we still have a very long way to go. When we live in a society where women are still terrified to say 
this person assaulted me, or they're terrified to ask for a raise, or they're, you know, terrified to do the basic things that, you know, a human being should be able to do without fear, we still have a long way to go. Scares me, too. I mean, I worry about my wife. I worry about a young niece. I also mm-hmm. worry about my boys in terms of what they face. Um, what what things are you worried about them facing? Mm-hmm. I worry that they're going to get themselves in trouble if they're not careful. As, as well, I, we, I mean, I'm raising a son, too, and I think as a parent, it's our responsibility to raise our children to be good people so they don't end up, you know, in situations where, Someone could say that they've done something wrong. Um, I, again, I, you know, I reiterate, as relates to me too, false accusations make up 3% of all claims that involve some kind of sexual impropriety, and this has been proven. So I think that, you know, me, I, again, I'm raising a son too. I'm like, if you fall into that 3% after everything I've done to raise you to be a good man, then I've got to look at myself and wonder what happened. You know, like if, if, if you are, end up actually, I should say, if you end up being someone who falls into the 97% who actually, you know, does harm someone, that's my issue. If he's falsely accused, I'll stand by him and, and know that I raised a good boy. But the, the, the possibility of that is so low. My hope is that I've taught him to avoid those situations where anyone could even think like that. Well, let me ask you a question then. Um, yeah. One of my guilty pleasures is watching The View every day on television. And they, oh, I'm sorry. And um, <laughs> a couple of the women on The View talk about having the talk with their male children, to talk about what to do if you run into a policeman. Have you had to mm-hmm. have to talk? Yes. Uh, my son's first encounter with the police was when he was 10. But I'd already had him in the streets protesting by age 8. So my son was, you know, for his age, really cognizant of these issues with police brutality. And so I've taught him what to do when police come up to him and how he's supposed to respond and things like that. At the same time, I'm also teaching my son, you know, integrity and to have dignity. And um, I have no interest in watching my son cower to the police either. I want him to know his rights. And my hope is just that by him asserting his rights as a United States citizen, police don't retaliate and take his life. Hmm. It's got to be scary. It's scary for yeah, parents. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. And I have friends with daughters that have that same talk, you know. So it's like it's not just about our boys. It's about all of us and making sure that our kids are prepared to be black people in this country. So many things are wrong with this country. If you had to name the top three things you want to change, what would that be? Um, I would want to change American greed, which I think is at the root of all of our isms. I think that people believing this idea that they too can be a billionaire tomorrow and being willing to step on people and and harm other people to get there is troubling. I would um, improve our education system. Right now, I think that we... Um, are not doing the best by our children, and there's too many disparities uh, around the country. Not everyone gets equal access to a quality education. And I would work on classism. I mean, we've got, I live in, you know, we live in Philly, and it's almost a 26% poverty rate. And in a country like America, 
as wealthy as we are, we should never have a poverty rate anywhere that is that high. Um, so I would definitely work on some of the class issues. I think those are the huge, like, those are the three top things for me. Well, the education system here in Philadelphia, again, um, there's really a whole bunch of different school systems operating at the same time. There's the private schools, there's the parochial schools, there's the pure public schools, and then there's the public charter schools. And, mm -hmm. um, and all of them give a different education, don't they? Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, one of the things that's complicated. It's, it's you know, what's the standard? And if, you know, private institutions have this higher standard and are providing a so-called better education, then why can't every child have access to that same curriculum? And why can't we prepare every child to be able to, to rise to those standards? Um, I know a number of Philadelphia teachers out there that are working hard every day to try to get these young people, you know, on their way and give them the best education possible. And one of the biggest complaints is that they are just lacking in the resources and the support to do it. And I think we need to work on that across the board. You think it's a lack of will, a lack of cash, or what? Probably both. Um, definitely the cash. I mean, the city is cash-strapped. Everybody knows that. Um, We've also seen examples where the city mismanages funds and, you know, makes decisions that maybe, I don't know if the money should have gone that place, you know. Um, but I think that I think that it's just been an ongoing struggle and maybe some poor decisions made over, you know, the past couple of decades or so that probably need to be righted. And I think that uh, they're on the right track from what I can see, but um, I'll leave it to the teachers to, to speak to what they think is, is you know, best for them because I'm not a teacher. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Feminista Jones, commentator, retired social worker now, author. Her new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. I need to run a few commercials, Feminista. We'll be back mm -hmm. in just a bit. And we're back here on WIP Sunday with Feminista Jones, commentator, author, and a whole lot more. Her new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from Tweets to the Streets. All right, Feminista, back to your title for a little bit. Um, yeah. Are black feminists different in Caucasian feminists? Um, yes. <laughs> um, the reason I, I make that distinction is because the idea of being a black feminist is a reminder that race plays into our experiences as women, um, that we are not just black people, we are not just women, but we are black women, and that makes our um, experiences, you know, unique. And while there are, you know, white women who are feminists that go through a lot of the same things, there has to be an understanding that us being black changes how we experience the world. This may be a dumb question, but how does it change your perspective? Well, um, as a woman, right, I can relate to a white woman when we walk down the street. We don't want to be catcalled. Uh, we don't want to be sexually harassed at work. We deal with issues. You know, we don't want to experience domestic violence. But then as a black woman, I don't want to be sexually harassed by the police. I don't want to have... I don't want to have a higher rate. Like, I'm more likely to experience domestic violence. I'm more likely to experience things because of my race and because of the disproportionate ways these things affect black people. Um, so while I'm 
fighting for, like if you think about running for, for office, right? You know, it's, it's very hard for women to run for office and to be successful. And it's very hard for black people to run for office and to be successful. But when you look at how many black women have been successful in history at achieving, you know, significant um, posts, right? It's so rare. It's even, it's even harder. So it's just kind of understanding that you're, your race informs your experiences with your gender, and your gender informs your experiences with your race. Okay. You're thinking about running for office. I hope you will. Um, I'll write I'm a, I'll, not. Oh, you should. <laughs> Please. I'll write I get a, that all the time. I'll write a campaign I get it all check. The time. I know. I was just in Iowa, and people were like, yeah, she must be running. I'm like, no, I'm not running. Um, you know what? I think that everybody has their lane, and I would much rather support someone who – politics is their thing and they want it they're passionate about you know holding a public office you know i'd rather support them in their endeavors because that's not my lane um but I, I i do have a lot to say and i'm willing to you know put my money behind the candidate i believe in you know all of that but that's just not my thing well then at least feminista jones for secretary of healthy human services <laughs> that would be quite awesome actually um but it's just you know there's a lot of pressure that goes into those kinds of federal positions that, you know, I guess I just retired from social work. I'm trying to just relax, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And I'm kind of reaching the point where I'm trying to ease up on all the work that I do just for my own, you know, mental and physical health. Yeah. It sounds like you have a plan. All right. Um, yeah. What is your job as a writer and a commentator? How do you describe it? My, my job is to tell stories. Um, I've always been invested in the idea that if we want to know the truth, we have to let people tell their stories. And there are different types of people who have been routinely silenced or we've not heard from because of whatever identity or what lack of access. And so I like to tell people stories. And what the book does really is it's introducing the world to people they may have never heard of, but who have been really significant and have had an amazing impact on our culture and society. And I want to be able to tell their story, particularly as someone who has worked alongside with them. Um, when I write essays um, and when I, when I write articles for publications, I'm, I'm trying to tell the story that maybe comes from a perspective people haven't thought of or read before. Um, I want to try to represent people's truth as much as possible. And many times that means, you know, passing along the story to someone else who can tell it better. But I think that the, with the pen, as writers, we have so much power in being able to shape narratives and, and, and document history, and I just want to be a part of that. Yeah. In general, anybody who puts something out there for the public has that power. I mean, sometimes I feel like I've got a certain power by the guests I book and the questions I ask. Absolutely. And you have a radio show, which gives you a communication, you know, device that is incredibly powerful and always has been as long as we've had it. Thank you. We have a caller this Mm -hmm. morning here on 94 WIP who wants to say hello to Feminista Jones. Let's say good morning to Brian from North Philly. Brian? How you doing, Feminista? How you doing, Ms. Jones? And um, how you doing, Peter? Um, morning, in, in 1968, uh, um, when Dr. King got assassinated, the government implemented something called the Manai Neglect Policy. 
the Manai neglect policy was during the time of the rise of the Black Panther movement in, in the 60s in Oakland, California, and the separation of individual church. Now, at that time, you know, we had feminist movements that, that came along. And um, I, I spoke with various people, and, like, some people, they feel as though that feminism was kind of taken away from what the civil rights movement was really based on. And it really didn't support the black community because there, there are some people who I spoke some pastors who said that that uh, during the time of the civil rights movement that a lot of blacks or African Americans at, at that time period, okay, didn't get the benefits of what the civil rights movement was about. Yeah, we have our rights. We may have gotten rights. We may have strived a long way. But I was listening to you when you were talking about how the police brutality and how you know, and how your son experienced police, police brutality, and how I experienced it myself, because I'm a black man myself. But the whole issue is this: that we fail to realize that the system, the system that's been in place, is the problem. It's not the people; it's the system, the criminal justice system, education. Um, Elizabeth Warren was talking about this recently about how blacks were were turned back and like they were red line through the banks in terms of getting housing. You know what I mean? It's the system. So when so when we look at things as African Americans, we had tendency to look at the people, but we fail to look at the system that's in place. How people that go to student how to how to get red line from getting student loan debts or getting loans for getting their own co- corporations, own companies, and. I was listening to a guy, I was, reading, I was looking at something called Hidden Colors by a guy named Tariq Nasir, and um, one of the scholars was saying, he said, this is his opinion, he said blacks were doing better when they were separated because he felt as though, I forget the guy's name, but he felt as though that integration was the biggest problem that blacks and African Americans had during that time period because back in that time we had the Harlem Renaissance, we had Black Wall Street, black people had their own businesses. So now we became a community without a community. So we look at black people now today, most of us, we don't own our own businesses. So we go ahead, we patronize other businesses within our community, but that money doesn't come back within our community. Now if you look at the Asian communities, okay, like the Chinatowns that were based because it was based on what Ronald Reagan had, the Civil Liberties Act, and when, it, when he was the president, that gave the agents, when they came to this country, because when, when America, when they bombed um, Nagasaki, Japan, those people, they got reparations for that. So now that's... Brian, yeah, that I don't mean word. to cut you off. Do you, do you have a question, Brian? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I, I have a question about feminism. Question. And the reason why okay, I went off on that, because the fact is, okay. my question is because of the Civil Rights Movement. Their views was that... When these feminine movements, when they came along, they took away the rights, they took away the support of the black movement, the power structure that was that was put in place at that time. Because the biggest problem that we have now that we have separate families. You know, you, you have... Okay, so your, your question is what? My question is this. My view on feminism, do you think feminism, feminism have hurt the black community, or do you think it helped the black community? I think black feminism is the key to black liberation, and black feminism existed for over has existed for over a hundred years. Black feminism exists in the continent. Black feminism exists around the world. Black feminism has nothing really to do with you know this, the the sixties or things like that. 
Um, Marcus Garvey's wife was a black feminist. Anna Julia Cooper was an early sociologist, worked with W.E.B. Du Bois, was a black feminist. Black feminism has existed and has been written into our history. The problem is that people have taken it and twisted. You reference someone and you got his name wrong, but I don't ever repeat his name, but he's one of those people that has twisted this. Uh, the Moynihan Report came out and pitted black people against each other by suggesting that black women are um, pushing black men out of their homes. It was a racist report. It was debunked several times, and yet our people, some of our people continue to cite it as a real source. The truth is that feminism has worked to support and push black people forward by acknowledging that it's not just about race issues. Rosa Parks was a black feminist. We would not have the civil rights movement as we know it were it not for her. So people talk about her on the bus and not giving up her seat. They don't talk about how 10 years prior she started her career working with the National Organization of Women, NAACP, and she, uh, she worked on a case of a woman, a black woman, who was raped by four white men, okay? So she started as a feminist. So when we talk about history, it's important, one, to read real history and not rely on, you know, fake news or things that we find on YouTube University. Two, to educate ourselves with an open mind and not believe propaganda. And three, allow ourselves to understand how these movements work together. And I think that when you, talk, you mentioned broken families, um, if you want to be honest, it's not women that are leaving their families. So, and I hate to say it that way now because today, I think we really come together. It is now, not women leaving their families. So not in the I black community? That, not today? What I think is problematic is when people who don't know much about feminism have a whole lot to say about feminism. So my recommendation to you and to anybody listening would be to read more about it. I have a whole book about it. There's tons of books about it. Read more about it, not from people who hate black women or no, who no, it's, feel by black women. But excuse me, Ms. Jones, it's, 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 it's not even based on I, hating black women. Actually, sir, I'm going to stop you because okay. you have occupied a lot of space and a lot of time, and I'm going to say this. I am an expert. This is an academic text. I'm taught in schools. I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm a historian in many ways. So this is all well-researched and well-documented. I've written about it. I recommend that you read the work of black feminist women to learn more about what it is. Right. I'm not going to read about black men's experiences throughout history uh, without reading black men who have written about themselves. So I recommend you do that. And that's basically my response. No, black feminism has not hurt the black uh, power movement. It has only tried to help and enhance it. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you, Brian. That's not true. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My guest, Feminista Jones, one 729 if you want to be a part of the discussion. He made you mad, didn't he? No, I don't get mad over things like that. I'm more embarrassed for people who come on public spaces and show themselves to be ignorant um, because what it does is it reminds me so much of how my people have been denied education and access to education, and so they're forced to rely on a lot of ignorance that trickles down. And I get, I get more sad than mad um, because it's very easy for someone like him. And I counter men like him every single day. And I'm more and more sad because I'm like, if, if this guy was just given more access to education and to the knowledge that exists out there, he would not think like this, you know. And then to be so bold and go on a radio show or to go on social media or TV and say these things, it's like, 
embarrassing. So, well, but it's my, it's my job to let people like him on the air. In that, oh, we, we want all points of view and discussions, even one we might not agree with. Tell no, me. I, I definitely I'm I'm with that, and we, I think I I disagree with um, a lot of people a lot of times who actually are smart and have access to this knowledge, and we can have different opinions. What bothers me is when people don't even have access to that, and they're forming opinions because they didn't get the chance to learn. That bothers me. So you're mad at the system more than him? I'm mad at the system. All right. I want to ask about the other two books briefly. Sure. Um, Push the Button and The Secret of Sugar Water. What are they about? So The Secret of Sugar Water is a collection of poetry um, over 10 years of my life. I realized that I'm not a poet, but I would write down these kinds of, you know, poetry-like things, and I decided to compile them all together. And they really focused on the various aspects of black womanhood, so motherhood, activism, you know, love, spirituality, things like that. Um, and then the first book is called Push the Button, and it is about a couple that lives in the kink lifestyle. Uh, when I first came onto the scene, it was I, I'm still very much a sex-positive black feminist, and I wanted to write a story about a black couple that had a sex-positive life and were living in the BDSM lifestyle because we, this was around the time Fifty Shades of Grey came out, and I was like, this book is terrible. Let me write one that actually, you know, tells the truth about this. And uh, I released that almost five years ago. Who gave you access, Feminista? How did, how did, how did it happen for you to get the education to be such a yeah. person? I feel like I was, um, I benefited from luck and opportunity and a mother who would not say no. Um, I grew up in New York City. First I lived in Queens, then I moved to the Bronx. And I was in public school, and my mom realized that I was getting a lot of negative marks on behavior because I was bored and acting out. And so she went out of her way to, to find some other opportunity, and we found a small school in Manhattan that I had to apply through to through a three-step process, and I got in. And the school was focused on working with black and Latino students or lower-income folks in New, York, in New York City, have access, get a so-called better education. And from there, I was able to get into a private boarding school in New Jersey. And from there, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania. So it was like my mom, when I was in, like, fifth grade, was like, I have to do something better for you. And what really, you know, kind of sad is that she shared the opportunity with other parents, like, hey, your kids can apply for this too, and they never took it. You know, they didn't want to go through the process. And so, you know, it was kind of sad that there were some folks who could have on the same path, but their parents chose not to. It occurs to me your grandmother must have been extraordinary as well, her mother. Um, my grandmother was an interesting, is, is an interesting person, and I don't really talk much about my extended family publicly. Okay. Well, but she, <laughs> she made your mother happen, and your mother made you happen in some respects, so that's yeah, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, all of our parents made us happen. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't get too much into that. All right. Um, mm -hmm. You do je guard, jealously guard your privacy, and I think that's interesting. Most I writers... try to. I try to. And it's really interesting because the guy that called spoke about someone who has been an ongoing threat to my privacy and to my safety, which is why I said I don't talk about him. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, when you are a public, so-called public figure or you're really visible, like what we call hyper-visible. Social media has been able to do that for a lot of people. 
you're going to attract people who just whatever, maybe they are not, you know, stable. Maybe they have psychiatric disabilities. Maybe they are just filled with rage and hatred and looking for someone to take it out. Maybe they just have this, you know, again, like kind of ignorant views about what you stand for. And unfortunately, people can get violent. And that is just the truth. And I have received death threats, rape threats. I've been stalked. I've had people show up in public spaces where I am, sending me pictures like, hi, I was here, and better watch your back. Um, if you go on my YouTube channel, um, I have a video about black feminism. It's got like over 3,000 comments of people just telling me to die, just all kinds of things. So I have to do what I can uh, to maintain privacy, but I have had people dox me, and, and doxing is when they release, you know, all of their private information. I've had to change my phone number. Um, luckily, I moved, so hopefully they don't know where I live now. Um, you know, it, it's been that kind of a situation just because I speak up and say that women deserve equal access, that black women should be treated better. You know, there are a lot of people that don't like that. Amen. And we're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. We'll be back after these messages. And hey, Alexa, play this interview here on WIP Sunday with Feminista Jones, her new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, tweets to the streets. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the use of social media, particularly Twitter, um, for movement building. And a lot of movements you think of like Me Too or Black Lives Matter, these things were created by black feminist women on social media. I'm also thinking about the streets in that I am from the inner city. I did grow up in hip-hop culture. I do think that um, there's a lot going on in the streets that we don't hear about. And people always say, well, what about gun violence in Chicago? And what about in Philly? And I'm like, there's a lot of organizations working on the ground and in the streets to fight these issues that we don't necessarily hear about. But we're hearing more about it because we're able to share what they're doing on social media. So there's like this continuum between doing things on social media and doing them offline and bridging those gaps. Um, so that's what I talk about throughout the book. All right. But then what do you think of social media as used by people like President Trump and his supporters? I think that everybody has the right to free speech. I think that when you're the president of the United States, your words are taken um, a lot more seriously or in a different context than other citizens. So you should be mindful um, I think that the fact that he uses Twitter to lie a lot, I mean, he's proven a liar a lot, is dangerous for our country and for our people. I wish they would take his phone away, but they won't. Um, but I think that, you know, as an American citizen, you have the right to free speech unless, you know, you're yelling fire in a crowded room. And sometimes I think that's what he's doing. So I don't know. It's all actually been quite ridiculous these last couple of years. Yes, indeed. How about criminal justice reform? Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I think that we have a justice system that um, has been slighted, that has always slighted certain people. Um, and until we start to really examine the deep, deep, deep roots of systemic oppression within the justice system, we're not going to get anywhere. I, I applaud all the people that are working, whether it's from a policy side, 
representation side, grassroots, what have you, the, you know, people telling their stories of incarceration and things like that. I think all of that works together to really uh, push this, this forward, this idea that we need to reform this justice system, because right now it, it's not justice for all the way it's supposed to be. All right. But at the same time, we have plenty of minority women and men, but minority women in this particular dispensing justice on the bench against minority men, and they can be awful harsh. I mean, I'm thinking of the Meek Mills case. Um, Yes, and they are acting as agents of the state. So in part, you know, the state and the laws have to be changed. The policies have to be changed. And I do think, again, you know, I struggle with, you know, people of color being police officers or being judges and things like that. Um, I don't know. It's it's really... um, complex because how do you fix the system if you're not working in it? Do you just try to shut the whole thing down? I don't really know the answer to that. And a lot of people believe they can change it from within, but sometimes they get caught up in that same system and then become oppressors themselves. And that kind of defeats the purpose. I look at someone like a Clarence Thomas, for example. It's like you have the high, you know, one of the highest positions in the land and you use it to oppress people. It doesn't make sense. Um, so, I, I think it's a very complicated, nuanced, ongoing um, issue, and I, I'm I'm here for reform. I'm here for reform on every level. <laughs> like we can always do better and be better. All right, what's in your book for the majority, as opposed to minority? What's in your book for um, nations? Yeah, my book is um, it, it captures this moment and what what I believe is a really important moment in history. Uh, if you read this, you're, you're going to learn a lot about black feminist history that maybe you've never even heard of. A lot of people don't realize that black feminism is ex- expansive and as old as it is, so they'll learn about that. Uh, they'll learn about, if they've never used social media, they'll learn how Twitter and Facebook have functioned for people. Um, they're going to learn some names that they've never heard, which is always fun. I pick up random history books because I want to learn things that I haven't learned before, so I think that that's the appeal. But mostly they're going to learn about where we're going in our future, particularly as women, as women of color, um, in a society that is finally starting to allow more voices to be heard. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. Um, I don't think I could get up every morning if I didn't have some hope. You know, I think hope is what keeps us going forward and working hard to try to make a change. I have a son. I want life to be better for him. So I have to remain hopeful. You want life to be better for him, but do you think it will be, or are we talking about your grandchildren when they come? Uh, you know, if if the planet hasn't exploded by then, <laughs> um, I am hopeful because, again, my generation is living better than the previous and so forth. So I, I have no hope, no choice but to believe that we will continue to get better. When I look at this uh, political race right now for the 2020 election, you're seeing so many people now throwing their hat in the ring and as, as people can say, well, it's too many people. I don't think it's enough people. As many people that want to run, this is a government of the people and for the people. And so that really makes me hopeful that we have so many different types of people running. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely we – would we wouldn't have had this, you know, 50 years ago or even 60 years ago. So I'm with it. All right. People running in 2020, what do you think of Kamala Harris? Uh, Kamala Harris, I think that it's great that she can run um, as a woman, as a woman of color. Um, I'm interested in learning more about her plans and her platform. Um, I have some issues with something she's done as a 
uh, attorney general and as a DA, but my hope is that she can present a platform that is way more progressive and pushes us in a different direction. Um, but I'm still open to listening to everyone. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand is uh, considering running. She's from my home state in New York. I've always liked her. But again, um, listen, you know, I'm interested in finding out what her platform is and what her plan was. Well, you mentioned the past for Ms. Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do we forgive her if she made mistakes in the past and that was then, this is now? Or do we hold it against her? I think if she believes she actually made mistakes, that's one thing. And if she says, you know what, I messed up with this, I want to be different. But I also think that she, in her town hall in CNN, she said she's very proud of her record and she stands by it. And it's some aspects of her record that people have questions about. So I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's all about where she's going from here. Um, and we'll see. We've got some time. Because not only in politics, but in life in general, people make mistakes, mm-hmm. whether we whether they, whether they recognize them or not. And it Absolutely. Point- I, I just wrote about that, like how we don't extend people grace. We don't allow people to grow and evolve. I've experienced that. So that's why I say it's like, you know, if somebody were to ask me about something I said 10 years ago that was offensive, and I said, you know what, that was offensive. I shouldn't have said that. And since then, I have not said anything like that, and I'm really sorry. Versus, yeah, I said that 10 years ago, and I still stand by it. That's the difference, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to allow for people to comment on their past and, and show some remorse or things like that. If they don't, if they stand by those things that are offensive, then we know how they think. I mean, I'm thinking tonight the Oscars, the controversy around whether Kevin Hart should be the one to host or not, and he's not going to host because of things he said. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think, unfortunately, he stuck his foot in his mouth by constantly saying, I don't want to talk about this anymore, while doing a media tour telling everybody he didn't want to talk about it anymore, you know, and claiming that he had apologized when he never really did and saying he doesn't feel like he has to keep apologizing. And everybody was like, well, when did you first apologize? And I think he did. He finally apologized. He stepped down. But then he went on this whole talk show tour in which he told, he kept saying, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I thought it was kind of ridiculous, and um, I think that his stepping down, that was his, you know, his doing, and now we don't have a host, so whatever. <laughs> you know. It'll be interesting to see what happens tonight. That's another discussion again. All right. Do you have a yeah, website? Yeah, we'll see. Do you have a website? I do, feministajones.com, and I have a, my book has a website, reclaimingoursafe.com. How about the blog? Um, so I mostly right now my blog is a patreon account which you have to subscribe um but i have moved to writing for publications like the new york times and time magazine and washington post what i what used to be my award-winning blogging is now you know me freelancing for these kinds of um arguments wow um i would imagine you're not going to hear anything positive from donald trump uh, probably not. Um, can I mention that I just got a message from one of your listeners and he said that I have a very cocky attitude and that I didn't need to be a jerk to the past guy and not to come back and say that he's racist because he has many black friends. I just wanted to put that out there. Okay. I'm glad you did. Hi Scott Weaver. Just wanted to acknowledge you because you said I'm cocky, so I'm being nice. You know who you are and you're not afraid to say it. That's a difference. Not at all. But, you know, when, when, when you're a man, you're allowed to do that, particularly when you're a white man. You're allowed to speak with conviction and directly, and that's seen as a good thing. When you're a woman, 
it's particularly a black woman. When you're a woman, it's cocky and arrogant, and you should be more ladylike and nice. And when you're a black woman, it's, oh, you're angry. So I, I don't pay much of that, any attention. He wanted some attention, so I gave him a shout-out. Well, not only that, though, if, you know, you were Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh, you wouldn't be called cocky. Not at all. Not at all. And I actually tell the truth. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I'm not sure that they do either, but that's, again, another discussion. And I'd like to say thank you to a fascinating guest this morning, Feminist Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It's been well worth the wait. Her new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. Please keep it up. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. Thank you, Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Tideman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without you. Nothing left to say, but be with you again soon.